today on Ag News Daily. But the other part is to learn lessons about ASF on the farm, both to help them, but also to help us be better prepared. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Delaney Howell here on the Ag News Daily Podcast, flying solo for today. Mike is off traveling, so we will hopefully get to hear a little bit of an update tomorrow with some of that information. So it's just me for today on the podcast. But there is a lot going on in the world of agricultural news. I tell you what, folks, the wires are hot today. Gosh, I don't even know where to get started for today, but I suppose it's always easy to look at what's going on in the world of Washington, D.C., because they have been moving and shaking as things are heading into a recess here ahead of Thanksgiving break. And really the first headline that jumped out at me today was what's going on on the H-2A visa program or looking at an ag labor law to fix specifically agriculture's problem to get workers to get labor force when they need them. A bipartisan bill passed and approved the House Judiciary Committee on Wednesday via a voice vote, but Republicans have apparently requested to, I guess, bring that back and are a little worried that this bill will create massive amnesty or allow a lot of those H-2A visa workers that we have right now to find an easier way to find legal status. And so I guess that's a concern right now for Republicans. But it does sound like this bill was passed by the Democrats. Um, It sounds like it it pretty easily passed the Democrats. So now it heads to the House floor. And we will see. We'll continue to watch that and see if it will pass there as well. Don't have a lot of details yet other than what we've reported on the podcast about what exactly this ag labor bill looks like other than changing the e-verification that employers would use, potentially changing some wages and wage levels, as well as I believe it it changes, and maybe this is where they're worried about allowing more folks to grant citizenship or gain citizenship from this, is I believe it also allows those H-2A visa farm workers, the opportunity or the really, I guess, chance not to have to go back to their host country or their home country and touch soil before they come back. So I think current current uh, visas, and can correct me if I'm wrong on this, listeners, I believe current visas, though, there is a period where those farm workers have to go back to their home country for a period of, I think it's 45 days. Uh, before they can come back to the U.S. and work again. And I believe this new ag labor bill takes out a lot of that requirement. So that's something that we'll continue to watch. But it sounds like it's pretty slow moving other than it passing the House Judiciary Committee with flying colors, it sounds like. But also going on in the House this week are continued negotiations between the Democrats and Republicans, on the USMCA agreement. Nancy Pelosi said in a comment on Thursday to reporters that negotiations are going very well on the House floor, but she said procedural steps that are required once a deal with the Trump administration is secure could push this vote into the new year. So it sounds like she seems optimistic that things are going to get worked out before the end of the year, but apparently because of whatever procedural, governmental, bureaucratic steps they have to take, 
they that could push the vote into next year. But it does sound like Japan, as we mentioned on the podcast yesterday, that trade agreement is in full speed ahead, although it seems today that some Democratic House Ways and Means committee members have said that a partial deal which, of course, does not require congressional approval, could make some lawmakers reluctant to granting more fast-track negotiations in the future. They are concerned that there could be serious ramifications the next time they address this deal and address it with Japan. And I'm not really sure why they didn't really mention much about that, other than um, Congress is now going to have more of a colloquial or a figurehead type of role in negotiating trade policy and I guess they you know want it to show that they have a little more of their finger in that pie that they have a little bit more authority there in discussing and addressing those trade related issues but uh, overall I think that seems like a silly thing to make a trade deal hold up over but I don't work in Congress, so I guess I don't have that say. But I think the only other big trade, excuse me, the only big other policy-related thing going on today out in D.C. is the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission is moving forward on a proposal with a Texas-based pipeline company to address the transportation issue that the Midwest is facing right now with propane. They are the federal... Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC for short, is granting a 30-day emergency transportation proposal and would allow this Texas-based pipeline company to ship more propane to the Midwest. That's not for sure yet, not set in stone, but we have seen quite a few Midwestern governors, members of Congress, and other folks reaching out to both FERC as well as some Texas-based pipeline companies to get this all sorted out. So it sounds like things are headed in the right direction there, but we still don't know anything for sure, which I guess you never really know anything for sure when it comes to D.C., including what our agricultural trade balance will look like this year, although it sounds like USDA is fairly close to finishing up their end-of-year balance sheets and figuring out where we were at for the 2019 season. I think this comes as no surprise to anybody, but we had a very small trade surplus for the 2019 season in agricultural exports and imports. U.S. farm exports are projected to total about $134.5 billion for fiscal year 2019, which of course ended in September, at the end of the September there. So USDA is still putting together those final calculations, but right now they're forecasting us to be at about $134.5 billion. Ag imports, however, coming in from other countries, are expected to total about $129.3 billion, which for those of you that can do some quick math in your head, that projected surplus is only anticipated to be about $5.2 billion, which would be the smallest trade surplus that we have seen since fiscal year 2006. This is coming out from the USDA as of yesterday. They shared a very interesting graph as well, which I'll share on our Facebook and Twitter page at Ag News Daily, looking at the trade balance. And 
it's just so interesting to see 2006, we were at a really tight level between exports and imports. We're seeing really similar levels on the chart for 2019 and maybe into 2020. But, you know, some of those really good years, 2012, 13, 14, where the trade balance was largely in the U.S.'s favor, it's just sad to see that now we are closing in on that so much. And so for context, this um, the trade balance between ag imports and ag exports has been tracked by the USDA for about the last 50 years. And according to the USDA, we've got data going back to about 1967. So the value of ag imports has been tracked. Ag imports and ag exports has been tracked since then. But looking ahead to fiscal year 2020, they are expecting our trade balance to get a little stronger into 2020, expecting it to climb to about $8 billion, which is still a pretty tight margin when compared to some of those other years. And again, I'll share that chart if you'd care to look at it. You can also read the analysis that was put out by the USDA. I'll include the link with that chart on our Facebook and Twitter page at Ag News Daily for any of those folks that like to read it for themselves. It's only a 24-page document, so that's better than some USDA reports that get put out. But uh, I plan probably not to read a majority of that report. I think the only couple other pieces of news I had for today, this is kind of a fun more lighthearted piece of news for today because Thanksgiving is right around the corner. And of course, Thanksgiving, the markets are closed. Mike Pearson and I have decided that we are going to take Thursday and Friday off of the podcast next week to enjoy some time with our families, spend some time with them. Personally, I like to go Black Friday shopping, so that's probably what I'll be doing on Friday for part of the day at least. But uh, we're going to take those two days off from the podcast but for those of you that will be enjoying a Thanksgiving Day meal, hopefully most of you are done with harvest by then and can have some time with your families. But the American Farm Bureau Federation always puts out an annual survey of the cost of a Thanksgiving Day meal. This year, they their cost for about 10 people to eat a Thanksgiving meal is about $48.91, which is about a one cent increase from last year. I think that just goes to show you that food prices have been pretty stable as of lately. And this survey includes, for those of you that are thinking, okay, what are they eating for $48? They're eating a turkey, stuffing, sweet potatoes, rolls, peas, cranberries, a veggie tray, pumpkin pie with whipped cream, coffee, and milk. And it includes quantities to serve a family of 10 with sufficient leftovers. So... That is pretty interesting stuff there. 92% of the people celebrate Thanksgiving at home or at a family member's home, and most cook their entire meal at home, also according to the survey there. So I thought that was also interesting as well. And final piece of news I think is very fitting for today because I caught up with Dr. Paul Sundberg, who we have had on the podcast. It's been at least two years now since we didn't have a World Pork Expo this past year, but chatted with Dr. Paul Sundberg of Schick or the Swine Health Information Center, I think two World Pork Expos ago. And obviously a lot has changed since then with African swine fever running rampant across parts of Asia as well as Europe. We saw some reports come out 
from the pork checkoff as of yesterday and African swine fever continues to to uh, rear its head in countries outside of just China. We are seeing major losses now shown in Romania as well, down there in southeastern Europe, as well as the Philippines. Uh, Poland has also had quite a few reports as of lately, and we're seeing that continue to spread um, towards Germany. Not any confirmed cases yet in Germany, but uh, they found some carcasses about 50 miles from the German border, so it sounds like it is moving westward. And likely, according to some estimates and forecasts by some people much smarter than myself, Indonesia is likely the next victim for African swine fever. But Rabobank put out an interesting statistic here and they're estimating that nearly 25% of the world's pig herd or about 350 million head could be gone by the year's end. That is a huge chunk of the world's pork population that could be gone by the end of 2019, 25%. So as we continue talking about that protein shortage, that protein deficit, African swine fever is definitely playing its part in that. But with that, I think that is all the news for today. Welcome to the Hot Rod Farmer Minute. I am Ray Bohax from the Idle Chatter podcast found on the Global Ag Network. When most in agriculture discuss stress, they are referring to something they are going through or that a crop or livestock is enduring. But there are more places that stress can be hiding and often just as detrimental. Almost anything that is made from metal is harboring unseen stress. It is invisible until the part prematurely fails cracks or distorts. All of us are affected. Sometimes something fails on a piece of farm equipment for no apparent reason, or a weld cracks shortly after repair. There is a reason for these events and it is called thermal stress. Metal can unintentionally shelter two different stresses, mechanical and thermal. Mechanical stress is induced when metal is bent, formed, or stamped. The metal is forced into a different shape. Thermal stress is created when metal is cut, welded, cast, drilled, or quenched. It is induced by a sharp temperature drop. For example, when welding, a natural air quench occurs as you move transversely away from the line of work. This is known as the heat-affected zone. During this sharp temperature drop, both the weld metal and the heat-affected zone are impacted. This results in potential cracking or distortion over time. Between the two, thermal stress is the most destructive. Thermal stress is found in every engine, transmission, tillage implement, planter, sprayer, combine, clutch, brake rotor, and anything else that experiences a sharp temperature drop either in use or during manufacturing. And if any of you folks are checking out today's gateway farm expo in Kearney, nebraska our market monday sponsors agmarket.net are there and would love to chat with you 
I've never been to that farm show. I think that'd be kind of a cool one. Carney's a cool little place there in western, well, I guess, would you consider it western Nebraska? Maybe central to western Nebraska. But anyways, kind of the last big town you hit before you get to Colorado. That's always when we stop in when we're heading out that way. But uh, those folks are there if you are out there. Looking at that farm show, make sure and stop by and see them ahead of their app that's launching this weekend. And we'll talk about that with Matt Bennett on the podcast on Monday. But let's take a look at where the commodity markets closed for today. Seeing some mixed trade in the grain markets for today as the December corn contract finished up a penny and a quarter at 368 and a half. The March added a penny and a quarter as well to close at 379 even. Soybeans were today's losers between corn and soybeans beans, but wheat also shed some strength today. The January soybean contract lost four cents to close at 901, while the March dropped three and three quarters cents to close at 915 and a quarter. In the wheat pits, the December contract closed six and a half cents lower to end at 509 even, while the March closed six and three quarters cents to close at 512 even. Looking over into the livestock pits, we are seeing red across the screen in the cattle complex. The December live cattle contract closed up two cents to end at one nineteen thirty two. The February, however, dropped forty two and a half cents to close at one twenty five oh five. In the feeder cattle pits, the November contract shed a dollar oh seven to end at one forty five fifty two and a half, while the January lost a dollar forty seven to close at one forty two sixty. The lean hogs saw a little bit of strength today as the December contract closed 20 cents higher to end at 60.65. The February closed 67.5 cents higher to close at 67.45. And rounding out our markets with the Class 3 dairy futures, November added 3 cents today to end the day at 20.37. The December contract put on 28 cents to close at 18.72. Now, as promised, let's turn it over to my conversation with Dr. Paul Sunberg of Schick. Well, I am catching up with Dr. Paul Sunberg, the executive director for Schick or Swine Animal Health. Swine Health Information Center. Gosh, I should have gotten that right. But it's been quite some time since we talked to you. I think we were talking, I think it's been since two or three World Pork Expos ago. So for those of our listeners that maybe have never heard of Schick or work outside of the swine industry, can you just give us an, a broad overview of what that is? Sure. Um, the Swine Health Information Center was formed by a grant from the National Pork Board in 2015. In 2013, we got porcine epidemic diarrhea, PED, and the pork producers were tired of doing the same thing over and over again and having the same things happen. So they said, let's try something different. Let's form an organization that will do monitoring of swine diseases so we have a better idea of what's coming at us, either in the country or foreign, but monitor for the diseases that might happen, make sure that we're better prepared should they come, see if we can prevent them, but certainly make sure that we're better prepared than we were back in 2013 when PED showed up, and also to to help organize um, communications. Um, producers subsequent to PED shared a lot of information about their their farms because they needed to know what their neighbor was doing in order to protect their neighbor and protect themselves from disease moving around. That started that effort that continues in sharing information and that leads to the opportunity to 
do a better job of analyzing it, to look for trends, and to communicate that back to the producers so they know what's going on around them, too. Absolutely, and I want to get to that, what the producer level things, but I want to ask one more background question, and that's what's your background and how did you get involved with Schick? <laughs> oh, well, um, I'm a veterinarian. I was in practice in Nebraska for nine years. I went back to Iowa State and got my Ph.D. in 94, and since then I've been working for the pork industry, both the National Pork Producers Council and the National Pork Board. Uh, in 2013, when PED showed up, I was a vice president in science and technology for the pork board, and when Schick was formed then in 2015, um, I, I was selected to try to help lead that effort. So when you look at PED versus African swine fever, there have been a lot of people that have been comparing the two diseases. In your mind, are they at the same level as far as catastrophe for the pork industry? Oh, no. No, they're not. They're not at the same level as far as catastrophe goes. I think they're at the same level as far as learning the lessons. Um, if we get ASF, that's going to be much more catastrophic than what PED happened in 2013. Um, and primarily because if we get ASF in the country, our international trade is going to stop right then, that day. And so that's going to be a catastrophic thing. That didn't happen with PED. So they're on two different levels that way. But they are on the same level in having to learn how to manage them. If we get them into the country, in 2013 when we got PED, we had to really scramble to do quick research to try to understand how it goes from farm to farm, to try to understand how you can clean and disinfect, to try to understand what biosecurity procedures you have to put into place. We had to figure all that out on the run. With ASF now, um, we have the opportunity to do those same studies, look at those same kinds of things, but do it in a country that has ASF, so if it gets here, we won't have to scramble. We'll already have learned those lessons. Well, and speaking of research, as I understand it, you've been doing some research regarding African swine fever. Will you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, the Foreign Ag Service of USDA gave us a grant to go over to Vietnam, and one, to help them better understand the virus scientifically, hold workshops, do online training courses, and that type of thing. But the other part is to learn lessons about ASF on the farm, both to help them, but also to help us be better prepared. Um, so... You can look at ASF in a laboratory, and we can do that here at Kansas State and Plum Island. They have high biosecurity labs, but we only do that five animals at a time or so. Over there in Vietnam, we have the opportunity to look at that virus as it's on the farm, as it acts, and as it moves. And that's a much better opportunity to see the real life happening for the virus, and that's the research we're doing. So we're going to be better prepared should it get here. And are, is there any efforts being done? I mean, I know in, in China we've heard about other countries doing efforts to find a vaccination. Is there some efforts by SHIC or other organizations to find a vaccination in case it does come to the U.S.? Yeah, well, the Swine Health Information Center doesn't put money into vaccine development. There are, um, there are multiple, much bigger and much more deep pocket um, efforts looking into vaccine because that's a real priority. Um, as far as I know, the information that I have, we're still years away from getting that. So it's not any time soon that we'll see that. And this is just me having a very small science background, but why is it that that vaccination is going to take so long to find? Because the virus is so complex. This is a really big virus. 
And the bigger the virus, the harder it is to find the pieces of it that stimulate the immune system. And so it's rather um, elusive. We haven't been able to identify that spot. There's been decades of research going on about that. Haven't been able to do it. The other thing that, that is a problem with this virus is that it only grows in certain cells. And, and those cells can't be ramped up to be able to manufacture the virus in the quantity needed to make a vaccine. So we can do it in the laboratory, but not to make a vaccine. So we've got to find a better way to propagate the virus to, to be able to develop a vaccine as well. So there are a lot of problems that still have to be answered despite multi-millions of dollars and multi-decades of research. And I think we would be remiss if we didn't even at least mention foot and mouth disease. I mean, that one has been kind of taken a step back because of African swine fever and the notoriety that that's established in the industry. But what is being done on the foot and mouth disease side of things? Because that's also a big concern, not only for the pork industry, but other industries as well. Sure, there's a lot of things going on. And one of the risks of African swine fever is it's that bright light that can blind you to all the other things that are happening. And, and like you say, foot and mouth disease certainly is one of them. Um, and there are other domestic diseases, things that we already have here that we're looking for as emerging diseases. Classical swine fever, for example, is going on in Japan and in um, Brazil right now. So there are a lot of things that we're monitoring for. A couple of efforts that we do with the, in the center, um, we put out monthly reports, both for the domestic diseases that we have, through the veterinary diagnostic labs, putting that information together to show trends and show things that are happening in the diagnostic labs, as well as international disease monitoring. And those reports are on the swinehealth.org website. They're, They're put out monthly. They're put out in our newsletter. And we're trying to make sure that we best inform producers um, to, to get that information in their hands so they can work with their veterinarians to, one, help understand it, two, help increase or enhance maybe the efforts that they have to keep those things off of their farms. Well, and speaking of that, it's, it's, I talk to so many producers that say, especially when it comes to things like African swine fever or otherwise, that's a government issue. It's whatever the government does to control that. It's a trade issue. It's, it, they feel like it, the control is out of their hands. Besides biosecurity, or I guess we could even talk about biosecurity. I think that's never an old subject to talk about. But besides that, is there anything else that they should be doing or could be doing to ensure that African swine fever, PED, things like that never come to their operation? Yeah, that's really perceptive because that really is the issue. We can have biosecurity fatigue. The issue we have with national biosecurity is that it all starts on the farm. Um, We have Customs and Border Protection at the ports of entry and airports and elsewhere that are stopping people from bringing in illegal food products. ASF doesn't infect people. It's not a food safety issue, but it will make a pig sick if they come in contact with it. So we have CBP that is working at the airports and ports of entry to stop those kinds of things from coming in. But the real issue for biosecurity and real national biosecurity starts with each individual farm. If, perchance, that sandwich gets through the airport and and CBB doesn't catch all of them, then 
we've got to keep it off the farm and we've got to keep it away from pigs and that's a very local issue that's a very that's a very farm level issue and and sometimes it's I, I'm concerned that producers may get the idea that oh this is all big national biosecurity and I don't have any role in that I really can't do anything that's just the opposite it starts with producers on the farm the other thing that they can do is if they have an animal health event, if they have a pig that dies, if they have a mortality event on the farm, to get professional help in getting a diagnosis. Don't assume, because it looks like something that you had before, that it is what you had before. ASF especially can look like a whole lot of things that we normally deal with in the U.S. The only way we're going to find it quickly is if we get that professional diagnosis for the first one that dies and we find out what it is so we can do the best job we can of containing it. Hey, that, I mean, I think that makes, a sen- makes sense not to assume. You never want to do that anyways in real life. But uh, before I let you go, Paul, remind us again where folks can find out more information about Schick or look at some of those refer- materials that you've referenced today. Yeah, swinehealth.org, swinehealth.org. That's our website. Um, we also put out a monthly newsletter. You can go onto the website and sign up for that, so you get that in your inbox every month. Um, those kinds of things are always available. We're trying to push them. We don't always want people just to go, but we want to make sure that we get the best information we can to them. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining today. Yep. Thanks for the opportunity. All right. Well, thank you again to Dr. Paul Sundberg. Always fun to catch up and chat with him. Interesting stuff that they're doing there in Vietnam, putting together some African swine fever studies. Doesn't sound like a vaccination is any time in the future that's coming down the pipeline, but there are things, as he mentioned there, that you can do to prepare for foreign animal diseases, not just African swine fever, but when we are in times like this where that's just dominating so much of our headlines, things like PERS, PED, foot and mouth disease, those things get put on the back burner, but they are also, you know, continuous threats as well. So it's important to be aware of what's going on in the industry. And guess what? Ag News Daily can help you out with that. We talk about this stuff all the time on our podcasts. Feel free to go back and check out any of our past episodes with any guests that may be of interest to you. You can find us on the Global Ag Network website. Just search for Ag News Daily and we will appear or you can interact with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Ag News Daily. And share with us your thoughts, comments, and what's going on in your neck of the woods. So with that, we'll see you all back here tomorrow. Thank <laughs> you.